Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, tools for how to think. Voting beyond charisma. And obstinate Euroscepticism. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. Was that obstinate Euroscepticism? Yeah, it was a bunch of words that I wrote down from our esteemed guest. Mm. Because (laughs) 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 it's... uh, don't worry, everybody. It, most of the conversation is not dull. that. Um, well, I think dull isn't necessarily... That could be a, a fascinating concept for some, but it's it it's, could. it's very um, academic. Yeah, that is. Yeah, and we did have an academic on the podcast today. We, this was our, I guess, our first professor? Perhaps, yeah. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. we say perhaps because we've had so many episodes <laughs> we might be forgetting. Yeah. Um, anyways, our first from you, Vic... And um, Valerie Derman, Dr. Valerie Derman, she's a professor of poli sci. Actually, an instructor. Instructor. Is the term that she liked to be referred to as. Because she's on a contract thing. It's political. Yeah, yeah political. <laughs> and we did get political today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it was uh, a fascinating conversation. It, it is, we're, we're, right now we're recording this on October 21st of the beautiful year 2020. And, um, and <laughs> we're, we're in a very political uh realm right now both in british columbia obviously there's stuff going on on the other side of our national border um and everything's pretty politically charged right now so we've been focusing in on these conversations and i think one of the reasons and and something that valerie was fantastic at was being neutral yeah and and just having a conversation and being able to look at both sides of a conversation because we're so out of touch with that in, in a lot of our society. I, I mean, social media has had a huge impact on it. Um, the, the news networks have a huge impact. You, you kind of just like are almost forced to be polarized. And what we want to facilitate and, and what Valerie facilitates is being able to have a conversation where you can see the other person's perspective and, and understand why that they, they might be ha- having that perspective. Well, and here's the thing. It takes more courage and actually more intelligence to be neutral because you have to be more savvy of, of knowing all the issues and all the angles. And, uh, you know, we talked about the importance of gray today, that we don't live in a black and white world, despite what you see on social media and, and with the political discourse. But we do live in a world of gray and neutrality is that um, superior and courageous position where we're able to really understand both sides. And she even talked about um, a few things that were good about Trump. Which, which was which was amazing about the fact that he was able to in his campaign actually talk speak to some of the issues that Hillary was just avoiding because she was making it all about you know what a crazy guy Trump was and so she was able to see like a little bit of light in a very dark place and I think that well, well that, that, that's not a very neutral perspective there <laughs> you know well, a lot of people voted voted for Trump and still support Trump. Yeah. You know, it it's frame, framing it as a dark place is is Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, but it's a common it's obviously Maybe I was a, trying to do that Andrew and show both sides. So there's an example of neutrality but also being extreme. But no, it, like sometimes we have this idea that if we're just neutral that it's, you know, it's more brazen or or better to come out and be like, "Ah," but often when we're doing that, we're biased. Mm-hmm. And and we're not as clear on on all the issues. And so yeah, I, I think I just realized that in this conversation, the the importance of how neutrality is actually uh, a little more courageous. We'll just in look the at end. The, look at the Swiss. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. they're doing great well, for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's and and we're not saying everyone has to be neutral because obviously you're going to have your opinions and you're going to have things that you support. Um, but 
finding a way to be empathetic towards an opposing opinion just makes makes you as you said a more well-rounded person and uh and and probably able more able to have a conversation that's not just an argument and just have civil discourse have civil discourse exactly so that that's what we were aiming to do today we it we did our best and valerie did the best job of not having an angle or not unleashing bias on the conversation and and that's what she does in the classroom at uvic as well Well, let's get rolling. Okay. And Dr. Valerie Derman, welcome to the podcast. We're we're thrilled to have you on. We're we're continuing a little bit of a trend we've done recently uh, in having political conversations on obstacle course. Um, so thank you for being here to contribute to that. Thanks so much for inviting me and for having me on. Yeah, as well as having doctors on. A lot mm-hmm. more doctors. We're trying yeah. to get the podcast a little smarter. Yeah. And I think it's working. Yeah. Because I just said something earlier that was really smart, but we didn't capture it. So you'll just have to believe me. <laughs> yeah. The non-medical doctors. <laughs> yeah. For non-medical. Sure. Yeah. 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 It just means you went to school for a long, long time, that's right? That's pretty much <laughs> For it. sure. Yeah. yeah. Where, Whether where that's great or foolish, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, for, that's for the world to decide. Yeah. <laughs> so where did you go to school, just out of curiosity? So I did my undergrad at McGill in, oh, uh, nice. in Montreal, and I actually did sociology there. And um, yeah, and I was... I don't think anyone who knew me uh, when I was doing my undergrad would have been like, you're going to be a professor someday. Like, that was <laughs> average undergrad, you know, trucked through, had so much fun, loved Montreal. And uh, then like five, six years later, when I went to graduate school, it was in the States at University of Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm. for, uh, you know, idiosyncratic reasons, <laughs> pretty much. I've heard McGill is amazing. Would you concur? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, um, you know, again, I was I was 18 and not necessarily so yeah. ready to appreciate all that right. I had to yeah. offer in some ways. But in terms of just the history in Quebec as well, yeah, and just exactly. being there and the vibrancy and the history of the buildings and stuff like that, it's, it's it's got a distinct history. Plus, I was there during the 90s when there was the referendum. Oh, wow. On Quebec independence in 95. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it was super super exciting that's actually partly uh, how i got into political science later ah, yeah which we definitely nice. want to talk about <laughs> there's well the done there <laughs> well and, and so much exposure to different social and po- political situations in in oklahoma from in montreal at that time mm-hmm. you know now you're out on the west coast of canada and and you have a you're from heritage wise from europe from italy so just a lot of exposure which i think enriches the your ability to to teach the that science um yeah (laughs) well yeah the more the more exposure and and diversity i think the better for for that sort of conversation um do you want to tell us a little bit about um about that background about what drew you into political science sure yeah so i should start by saying i um my mother was a professor of computer science so once she got her degree and she was a teacher she was a prophet uvic Um, I was exposed to academia a lot, and I never, ever, ever thought I'd go into it. I saw how hard she worked. I saw how stressful it was. I saw, like, the relentlessness of it in terms of grading on weekend. That's what every kid says. I will never do what you did, Dad or Mom. Exactly. Never. Ever. But then why do we? 
I don't know, I guess pattern recognition at a certain point, I'm not sure. But in any case, so I had this, I, you know, I worked, I traveled between uh, undergrad and grad school. I met um, my now husband. We met, we were both teaching English in Japan. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I always joke, he's my Japanese boyfriend. But he's not, he's, he's from Buffalo, New York. <laughs> so in any case, in that interim period, I, um, I traveled a lot to Europe, my so my parents came to Canada about a year, year and a half before I was born. So all of my family, all of my immediate family outside of my parents and my brothers, um, they are either in Italy or in neighboring countries. Which I, part of Italy? Uh, the north, Milano. Milano. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very industrial, but yeah, no, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, any case, so I have an aunt and uncle that uh, work for the European Union and had since it was the European community in the 1980s. I also have a cousin who was a translator for the European Union, so I was exposed to it quite a bit. Hmm. And in that, in that period between undergrad and grad school, I got really interested in how it worked, but then also trying to figure out, well, what do countries do as opposed to what the EU does? You know, hmm. like, But everyone feels like they belong to a country or a region. Why would anyone think they really have an EU identity? So it was just that sort of stuff that was mm -hmm. going around in my head. And I actually thought I wanted to go into journalism because what I knew I was good at was reading and writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was sort of my thing. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a journalist. I love writing. I'm good at writing. And then through conversations with my now husband, uh, he was thinking of going to graduate school to get his PhD. And, and he kept saying, you should, you know, you should do something there and journalism it, you know it's 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 waxing and waning he also knew me really well and knows that like I hate I hate pushing people hmm. like I literally hate calling up a restaurant to make a reservation really? it's just I hate I hate driving you must love things. open table eh? yes, yes. <laughs> like it's 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 I'm I'm not that person I'm super introverted and he's like so when you chase a story down you're going to yeah I was like, I don't know, ask you to call for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I began to think about it. And uh, yeah, and then through a constellation of different things um, and looking at the European Union, I realized, oh, it's not so much sociology, which had been my undergrad. It's really more in political science. It's really more to do with um, theories about nationalism, levels of governance, structures of you know federalism, centralized government. So that's how I... Yeah, those topics that a lot of people just want to steer away from big time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to talk about today is is why people um, or what has driven people to kind of just separate themselves from politics and just just not want to engage with it whatsoever. Just think it's uh, corrupt or think it's um, they don't even want to vote or participate um, and, and how we can start changing that narrative because it, it can be damaging. Um, as well as uh, we're going to talk about the EU for sure. Um, but I think the general framework we're going to bring it back to and, and what what can we learn from the EU um, and bring it back to Canadian politics because the majority of our listeners are Canadian. We do have listeners in America and, and in Europe as well. Um, but I think, yeah, the more localized we can create the conversation, uh, the better because there's, there's a lot that we can learn for better or worse from what's going on in the EU, what's happened in Great Britain, Obviously, what's happening south of the border as, as the U.S. presidential election is, is fast approaching. And mm. so, yeah, there's uh, I think the more we can kind of bring it back home, the the more For useful sure. it's going to be. It's interesting. We, we actually do have listeners in, in France and Italy. Andrew wasn't making that up. 
And uh, I always just picture, because, you know, traveling there all the time, these, these like quaint little areas, I always just picture just some old Italian man with a little <laughs> headphone <laughs> listening to our podcast. But it's probably not that. It's probably in one of the more developed cities. Yeah. But maybe in like a little, like, you know, the Cinque Terre or something like that. Totally. There's just somebody sitting in a cafe listening to our podcast. <laughs> that gives me more joy than you can even imagine if that's yeah. possible. It's the magic of the internet, right? It it's like click, 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 and then you're like, what's this? It's like, it could actually be anyone could. Yeah. yeah and you never know Giuseppe oh, so if you're good. listening right now um, just send John a selfie yes. it'll, it'll make his year yes um, please do Giuseppe he's probably <laughs> just having a supper right now yeah <laughs> awesome so yeah let's let's talk about the EU a little bit as it's one of your areas of expertise um, how do we what, what state is it in right now with what's happened with Brexit because the, it seems like Brexit's been going on forever and to, to the point where <laughs> Like yeah. a lot of people are kind of just completely fed up with it, um, including those who live in, in Great Britain, I'm sure. Um, but n- now I believe it's actually coming to a point where they're fully um, leaving. It's actually kind of coming to fruition now. And, and what impact does that have on the EU's uh, longevity and, and situation as a whole? Well, yeah, the EU is out. As of January, February of this year, they are officially legally out. So it's now an EU of 27 countries, no more 28. Mm. Um, So what that's done to the EU, I mean, on the one hand, there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, this is a huge precedent because um, a strong, visible member state uh, joined early on 1973. It wasn't one of the founding members, but it was in the first enlargement. Um, you know, this is a big precedent to democratically say, we want out. We are going to exit this thing that has been celebrated internationally, that other countries want into, but we are, we're out. So there's a, there's a bit of a psychological impact of mm-hmm. that. You know, who could actually want out of this thing? Right. And I think that was the ricochet of the Brexit vote, both for the UK, for people in the EU, for some of us in North America as well. On the other hand... It doesn't necessarily do much to the EU itself in that it's still composed of 27 members. It still has a very strong single market. Um, It still has a population of, you know, way more than 400 million people. It's still one of the biggest markets in the world. In some ways, the UK was such, uh, the fancy term is a Eurosceptical member, like it was always kind of pushing back on political integration. It, it was all for a single market and, and uh, boosting economies and free trade, but it was very reluctant in a lot of other areas. So there's this competing perspective that, well, with the most obstinate Eurosceptic member out, I suppose there's the potential, remains to be seen, there is the potential to... Um, have more political integration, whether it's social policy or public spending or labor laws, mm-hmm. et cetera, those kinds of things. Really remains to be seen, though. It's It took forever like to go from the Brexit referendum to the UK getting out and now with COVID and all kinds of yeah. other big fish to fry. Uh, it's it, it remains to be seen. But the potential is there. So I guess two extremes could be there. One is that another country wants to exercise some sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, some sort of pushback against European integration and actually have a referendum on leaving because there is this precedent. It's not the scary and familiar thing. Or the other extreme would be the EU can double down a bit more on politically integrating, becoming more of a familiar federation in some ways. So I re- represent the, those 
part of our listeners who really don't know a lot about politics because I don't know a lot about politics. So I will be I throwing out questions <laughs> at some point where you might just be like, okay, that's kind of elementary. But here's one of them. Um, if Brexit decides at some point, like if Britain decides at some point, you know, it might have been a little rash on that decision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's just, let's just like awkwardly saunter back <laughs> and just be like, so guys, um, you know, we might have been a little like emotional and, uh, you know, we, we want back in. Is, is that something that could happen or would happen or just can happen? Oh, gosh. You know, that's a great question. Or should it happen? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> could it? Sure. I don't see why not. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like it, so many things change. Markets change. Situations change. I mean, COVID. Think of think of you guys doing this podcast a year ago. Like yeah. How far oh, yeah. that mm-hmm. stuff was from anyone's perception. We were talking about obstacles a year ago, not knowing that yeah. the world's biggest yeah. obstacle was we're coming. Yeah. Have one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it could happen. I mean, the EU is a huge market and yeah. there's certainly a lot of money to be made. There's certainly. Yeah. So things could change enough where maybe there's a push through a political party or through a democratic push civil society to rejoin so i think that is a possibility i want to talk a little bit about what like the undercurrents politically that that led to brexit because there's a lot of similarities in in u.s politics in terms of populism and Mm -hmm. um what how how the people are feeling and and um the rise of, of populist leaders like we saw in, in Britain as well as um, what we're seeing in the U.S. now as the election is approaching, might might still see for another four years. Um, so do you want um, you to... Were, you were nodding there, so I think I'm maybe on the right track with, with the populist narrative. Do you want to define what populism is and tell us how it relates on on both sides of the Atlantic. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Actually, that's a great question because um, nice. the word populism it's um, it's gotten a bit unwieldy in that it's it's applied to everything now yeah. and it has all these negative connotations, right? It's it's like anything when anyone in the public eye does something bad politically, oh, they're a populist. And it's sometimes inaccurate. So, I mean, st- Within a lot of the poli-sci literature, it's defined as leaders who are um, trying to just capture the hearts and minds of the people without kind of conforming to standard representative process or even to uh, political party platforms. And it can often... There's a certain element of charisma in it to mm-hmm. have a populist leader. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more of a drive to appeal to people as a mass in terms of I'm one of you rather than kind of resting on, um, I don't know, I always think of them as like the bullet points of a political party platform. Yeah. So really working with that appeal and with generating a kind of community that is us and them, you know, so the people against the elites. Uh, and the suggestion therein is that there's almost a kind of an anti-establishment, anti-government yeah. connotation to that, which is why, I mean, populism as a strategy, it doesn't have to be right wing. It can be left wing. It can be centrist. It doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't necessarily have to be have negative connotations. I mean, I remember when Trudeau first came up as leader of the Liberal Party pre um uh, before he was uh, made prime minister, obviously, there was there was some criticism of his of his background. I think even in the Globe and Mail, or you know, all the various things, and oh, that for sure. he wasn't seasoned, right? He mm-hmm. didn't he didn't go to law school. It's just a drama teacher, exactly. You know, yeah. like he had been an instructor. He had done a host of jobs. Uh, he wasn't necessarily like had he not been Pierre Trudeau's son, had he not been inculcated mm-hmm. in that kind of 
family, you know, dynamic grown up in Ottawa and, and the and the House of Representatives, all those things, if he had not been that son, I think there could have been a lot more analysis of him as a populist leader and just using mm-hmm. his appeal, his charm, his smiliness, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of um a substance in his professional life up until that point to kind of say, oh, that, that should be the leader of the next liberal well, party. And it is a criticism. Now we hear it as people being like lifelong politicians, as if that's like a bad thing. And and the, I know there's been criticism of Biden and it's, he's kind of, you know, Trump obviously has not been a lifelong politician and, and pe- that's appealing to people. But like, if you're going to a doctor like, don't you want your doctor to be like well trained and have done that job for thirty years, or a lawyer? You don't. How does that not apply to politicians? Yeah, you don't hear people saying often. Well, at least my doctor's good looking. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't trust him if it wasn't good looking. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, like like even you know, Angie's got some um, some um, friends in in the U.S. that she talks to quite often, and and they just always say about. Um, Trudeau, oh, he's just so good looking, isn't he? Yes, that's all they say. I know. I find right? it. It's annoying. just like, but like, like you were just saying, is that really like a like a good um, qualification yeah. to to run the nation? But often it kind of comes down to that. The person who's use words like charisma, right? You know, that's often the way it is. Someone yeah. a chari- a charismatic leader who can hold the attention and hold the people. Let's vote him. And he speaks his mind. That's what everyone said about Trump. He speaks his mind. That's so refreshing. Well, four years later, everyone's like, he like, a little too much. Please shut up. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God. Right? Well, and, and yeah. he's, he's speaking lies more than well, yeah. any leader has in, in like sure. the history of, um, of politics. But yeah, so, so populism uh, speaks to the people. It has that us versus them mentality. W- one of the great dichotomies about Trump is that he put he frames himself as a man of the people wearing the red hat um but he's like he also frames himself as being one of the wealthiest people that's ever lived right um and is part of the elites and and how it's just a bizarre narrative um and it seems contradictory on the surface absolutely yeah. it's possible he hasn't thought it through no i i, I think um okay so i need to set this up is that uh i, I i'm very I do a lot of neutral analytical stuff. And so every now and then I find myself in the position of explaining Trump or possibly defending Trump. And Perfect. that is, uh, it's uncomfortable to say the least, particularly when there's, when there's students involved. But it's, it's interesting because I think what you were, what you were speaking to, Andrew, in, um, in terms of like, well, seasoned politicians, I think there's arguments to be made on both sides is that on one hand, yeah, you want someone who has experience with the political system, knows how things work, understands diplomacy, is familiar with who to who to build relationships with and how and what groups to be attentive to. On the other hand, I guess the criticism of seasoned politicians is that they've never held down the sorts of jobs that they're ostensibly protecting. Mm-hmm. You know, they've never they've never maybe, I don't know, just held like a regular job or they've never had to work within professions where it's not all about relationship building, mm. right? Where it's just about you take orders and you do your job and yeah. you go about your business. They're out of touch. They're out of touch. Like the service industry or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And I mean, I we see this actually in academia sometimes. It's like there's 
um, you know, people who have never been out of academia. They they went to school, mm-hmm. they, they, they went to university, then they just went into grad school, and then they started working in academia. And at a certain point, it's like you realize you're teaching students, they're not going to be following your track at all, right? It's like we, there's, I feel like there's a certain obligation to give them skills for the broader world. Because, you know, staying in the luxury of your head and thinking abstract thoughts all day is not... Um, it doesn't have utility for a lot of things. So I think that's the criticism. So Trump's little, um, his dance, whether people think it's ridiculous or full of lies or whether it's actually quite capably done, is that he's a businessman. And so in that, I think that's his hook. He's of the people. He's gotten into business. He's built things. He's sold things. He's trained people. He's hired and fired. He's worked within that environment. So that's, I think, where he's going. But in terms of is he of the people, like has he worked in a factory? Has he cleaned his own bathroom? Has he paid his taxes? Has he paid his taxes? <laughs> has he, yeah, thought about that? Yeah. So I think, I think that's the distinction. So when people, I, when other people, who knows what he himself thinks, who knows? But when other people, I think, are attracted to what he's saying and they're like, oh, yeah, he's one of us, he doesn't use the same the same language that we're so habituated to with other mm-hmm. politicians. So yeah. it could be, we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. You know, we're recording this at the end of October, but it was, I think for the groups that were attracted to him, that was very refreshing in 2016. Yeah, which is populism, right? Yep, totally. And, and the same kind of rhetoric was used in in uh, in England with the Brexiteers. Um, and I think when learning about populism myself that at least populism as we see it in in both of those scenarios there's a a big uh, anti-immigration sentiment there's a big like fear driving sentiment which i agree populism just like any other kind of political system it it isn't inherently positive or negative but it, it does seem like there are some negative aspects to both of those situations and and both the the narratives of anti-immigration isolationism and um and fear-based rhetoric um it doesn't fear doesn't do anybody good whatever we're talking about being in fear is not bringing out our best selves um so why do you think now we've we've seen populist leaders emerge when when it hadn't really been a trend in in politics and in the world at least in the western world in the last 50 years or so Mm. Oh, it's such a big question, right? I think that no one really can give a concrete answer. I'll just give you a host of ideas. Some are my own. Some are things I've picked up from reading. It's so just the first. So populism. One thing that could be seen as a danger of it, speaking to what you were saying about fear and all of those things, it's similar to some of the dangers inherent in pure democracy, which is that it can lead to mob rule, mm-hmm. and that's why in a lot of places there's these structures of representative democracy. Like we don't have town halls for every big decision. So that's where some of those tensions come in. It's it's democratic, but maybe it's it's not accounting for certain buffers. Why is we coming in? I mean, some would say it's pure or it's one of the biggest pressure points has been economics, the financial crisis, even a few years before, the fact that certain industries never quite recovered. Um, more about economics, just like, you know, decades now of really open trade and outsourcing a lot of jobs, the decline of the manufacturing sector in North America to some some parts of Europe as well. So it's created, um, you know, you always talk about, oh, the emptying out of the middle class. It's mm-hmm. what would be more accurate would be a hollowing out of actually making stuff 
because that cre now there's basically two categories of jobs. There's professional intellectual jobs and there's service jobs. And, you know, there was, there are huge populations of people who don't slot nicely into just like, oh, I'll just move into that industry really easily. So I think a lot of this, you know, fear, as you put it, or concern or pushback is maybe more um, an expression of anxiety and reaction hmm. to that. And sometimes it comes out as anti-immigration. Sometimes it comes out as, um, you know, lots of anti-things, more negative things and positive things. I think, you know, and this is, you know, it's still conjecture, but I mean, my instinct is that it's more to do with just maybe the perception of too much globalization, too much globalism, too much emphasis on multilateralism and internationalism. And people are feeling like there's there's been more emphasis on that than on taking care of home things first. That's my understanding of it. Yeah. And, and what's come along with it? As well as I'm reading a, or I just finished reading a book by Gwen Dyer, um, who, who's, it was fantastic. And, and I learned basically everything I've said in the last <laughs> 15 minutes. It, it, I mean, if it's not true, don't blame me, blame him. Um, <laughs> but he, a lot of those same storylines that you're mentioning and the, the lack of manufacturing has, has created um, a, a even wider gap in mm -hmm. income. In, and so a huge disparity in income is is what has, he's argued, led to a lot of these um, populist uprisings um, because the, there's a lot more poor people. There's a lot of people who are feeling disenfranchised with the system, who don't want it done the way that it's done, been done for the last 30 years because it's made them and everyone around them poor and unhappy. Um, and so they need to take out that anger and frustration on something. And and in the states, they took it out by voting for Trump because he, you know, promised to, to do things differently. Yeah, and that leads me to my question: Is Trump the virus, or is he <laughs> like the orange-headed pussy, you know, head of the virus? You know, like did the virus, you you know what I mean? Like, yeah. did was he created by a virus already there, or is he actually the virus? No, I think he was. He's very much just a symptom of it. I That's don't. I don't, I, yeah. I don't think that is the problem at all. Right. I mean, he's he's such an easy target because he's crass. You know, and he, and he behaves like a clown sometime and he doesn't spell correctly on Twitter. It's For sure. he's, he's a huge challenge to what we've come to expect from not just general political leaders, but the most visible political leader, at least in the West, if not mm -hmm. the whole world, you know, uh, et cetera. So, no, I, I, I don't think this everything that has gone wrong in the past four years is because of Donald Trump. I think there had been. I think a lot of different things have gone on. I mean, there has been sort of an, um, a hemorrhaging of jobs and money internationally for a long time. And that wasn't done maliciously. You know, that was done. It was done by Democratic administrations. Mm -hmm. It was done looking at spreadsheets and at economic logic. The idea being that, OK, well, if we can if some jobs can be outsourced, then companies can make more money and they can do more research and development and we can build more professional jobs here. Like there were good intentions behind it, but it it then led to a decimation of certain kinds of industries without other things coming in. And I think what a lot of, certainly, you know, the, Clint, the Clinton campaign in 15, 16 was not, didn't speak to that. Like I, I, I study international trade. It's one of my research areas. And there was this really great breakdown in The Guardian in 2016 looking at uh, what campaign speeches focused on. 
and the news, certainly Canadian news, you know, really focused on the more dramatic things Trump said, of which there were plenty. So, you know, no harm, no foul. I understand the need to get headlines. But Trump spoke to trade in almost every single campaign campaign speech he made. Clinton breezed through some of the Rust Belt, said something like, you know, talk to the unions she assumed would still support her and said, oh, yeah, you know, like we're with you and we're going to work hard to create American jobs, but without actually giving a plan. And that's what I think was not captured is that it's not about just finding more money and spreading it around. It's also uh, I just read this thing in Foreign Affairs, so I'm totally taking that. It's, it's also about the dignity of work. Like, yeah, people want to be economically secure, but this is a generalization, but it you know goes back in all kinds of philosophy and history. People want something that they do. You know, you don't have to love your job, but at the end of the day, you're like, okay, I did something. I did. I contributed to my family. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I I used myself for a purpose. Yeah. You know, whether you love it or hate it, there's a certain satisfaction in that. I mean, look at you guys. You're you're doing this podcast, even though you both have you know, jobs and lives and commitments. It's it's an, an extra thing mm-hmm. that you wanted to do rather than whatever, like watch TV or be on your phone. So I think that is what was not captured. The schism in 2016 was maybe exacerbated by Clinton being such a part of the elite, the Democrats taking so many things for granted. Like in hindsight, I didn't pick up on it at the time. I was as shocked as anyone. In hindsight, shockingly so, I think. And Trump coming in and saying, I know how to run businesses. I have, you know, I've gone up, I've gone down, I've weathered storms. And he basically was like, let's treat America like a business. Mm -hmm. And it's not about helping other businesses around the world right now, you know, have great relations. Let's just put America first. And Mm -hmm. well, the rise of nationalism while he's been in power has been exponential, right? For sure. Yeah. Because of a lot of things you already said. Yeah, about the outsourcing of jobs and yeah. What, one thing that I wanted to add into your your very valuable d- discussion and points about contribution uh, through work is is that's what Freud said um, that all we need as humans is love and work, and and that's what makes us fulfilled. Um, and when yeah, when you're stripped away your ability to to contribute to do your job. Um, it's it's a big part of people's identity. Mm-hmm. Um, we I said earlier that we would be tying things back to Canada, and we've done, <laughs> we, have, we haven't done a great job of that. So oh, we still got time. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so if we can, th- those narratives of populism, nationalism, um, of job loss, um, if we can apply those to Canada, where it it seems to be less extreme. But there was a new party federally, the People's Party of Canada, which I think is shares some of those same elements. Um, but it it didn't do super well, and I don't even know if it's a party anymore. Right. Um, but are there any um, are there any similarities that that we can we can draw anything we can learn from what happened with Brexit and, and what's happening in the states that that we may want to avoid or or follow. Yeah, no, that's such a great question. I mean, it's funny because in some ways, culturally, Canada and the U.S. are so similar. And I know, you know, Canadians hate to hear that, but <laughs> but, but like in the broad strokes, mm-hmm. right? In terms of settler countries and, you know, predominantly English language and heritage, et cetera. Um, but there's a lot of ways they're not. And like Canada, we are such an enormous territory and a relatively small population spread out really thinly, you know, within 100 miles of the U.S. border. 
so the dynamics are simply not the same. And partly because of that, Canada's always, always, always been a very open economy. You know, we've never necessarily had the strength of the workforce to produce everything we need ourselves. So this idea of, you know, Canada first, it's 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 not ne- it's never really been a part of the fabric i think also cuz canada's very uncomfortable <laughs> still if, if or maybe always with having that kind of nationalism you know there's the french there's the english there's the indigenous there's the fabric of multiculturalism so there are certain things that don't easily come into the canadian narrative i mm-hmm. think as they as we've seen in the uk and in the us that being the case though um, there's there's certainly the same amount of fear there's a little bit, Canada's a bit more, um, it's got less of the spread of wealth. So fewer people in poverty, but fewer super wealthy yeah. as well. It's and, th- and that's why you get brain drain sometimes from Canada to the States. The, the States are number one in developed countries for income disparity. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Interesting. And Canada's like, it's half the amount of, of disparity. Yeah. yeah. It's a much, much like narrower band. So that also from both sides doesn't feed into things as well, right? Like you don't have trillionaires or you don't have Google headquarters that are demanding certain kinds of things to do with taxes and subsidies and what have you. And you also don't have such a severe underclass that is, you know, at dangerous, dangerous levels of destitution. But I will say COVID this past year has really, I think, made people think of nationalism a bit in a different light. I'm not suggesting that people are becoming more nationalist, but we've seen how, okay, here we have a huge crisis. It's not an economic crisis. It's not a military crisis. It's a public health crisis Mm -hmm. that is completely equal opportunity in terms of how it spreads, right? The virus doesn't know know taxes or borders or anything. And And the best way to deal with the public health crisis is to rely upon state structures, right? Mm -hmm. Like our ability Mm -hmm. to close borders has to do with our national federal government. Our ability to supply health care, our ability to fund money into hospitals, our, our ability to give uh, the CERB and now employment insurance and all those things, those come from local taxes and local government or, you know, the various levels of government. So what is going to be interesting, because people perceive that, you don't have to be interested in politics to understand the border or benefits. We've also seen, yeah, and it turns out we don't really produce much of the stuff we need. We're not making the PPE. We're terrified that something else is going to happen and the supply chain is going to be interrupted. We're doing some virus research, but by and large, we're throwing money at other major companies that are doing it. I, I'm overstating it. I'm, to be fair, Canada's doing actually a lot of stuff, but I don't think there's ever been a question that Canada as a country is capable of weathering everything we need to fight the virus on our own. So... That's a big part, I think, of what's different about Canada compared to our biggest English language neighbors. But I also wonder just how, how big of a difference is the fact that we're only 153 years old. Like we're, we're kind of a youngin compared to the U.S. who is 100 years older and then Europe who's thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. Like so, so part of the question of like um, could we end up as we as – we, um, you know, continue to grow as a country, follow those same paths that the older countries have. You know what I mean? Is is part of it just because we haven't been as around as long? Um, is it, could that play into it at all? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. I mean, it could be. I think also though, Canada has such an interesting history. It's like you think about the UK, you think about France. 
they have been essentially, you know, the UK and France for hundreds and hundreds yeah, and hundreds yeah. of years. You can go to places and you're like, oh, that happened in 900, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was us, our ancestors there. I'm speaking as though I'm them. The U.S., no, settler country, same as Canada, but it had that defining moment of the American Revolution. Yeah. You know, it basically yeah, right. said, get out, and this is what we're doing, and we're taking over, and this is who we are, and this is who we want to be. Yeah, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, totally. things that are hundreds of years old, but are still, like, brought up in conversation, like, any time there's a political debate. To- more and sacred than, like, anything else, right? Sure. Than the a religious tone. Second or, Amendment. Yeah. Um and and in Canada, like, do we have a constitution? <laughs> we do. That's we what do. I mean, but, yeah. So my joke, and this could easily get me thrown out of polite Canadian society, but 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 my joke is is like I always think, and um, you know, like say you take the settlers, you take France and the UK and a bit of Spain and the whole bit, and there's North America and the thirteen colonies and all of that, and they're fighting and doing their own thing with the indigenous populations. But I almost feel like, so if, if North America settlers are the children, uh, you know, the U.S. side is the rebellious side, the side that's like, fuck you, and they take off and they do their own thing and they piss off the parents and the grandparents. <laughs> yeah. And Canada is kind of like the peaceful one. You know? yeah. We might have stayed in the basement of our parents' house a little bit too long. Uh, but so it never that's had that funny. same moment. And by the time Canada, by the time some parts of Canadian society, and I'm thinking actually of Pierre Trudeau's government, were ready for that moment, we were developed enough where the French were like, uh, wait a sec, <laughs> if we're going to be talking about these things, then we want in. And then, you know, First Nations were saying, okay, you know, hello, like we've, we've been here for a long time too. So the conversations about Canada having a moment and identity and building stuff came after there had already been decades of considerations of minority rights and diversity and multiculturalism, whereas European countries and even the U.S., I mean, their foundational moments came you know, your <laughs> conditions were not such where, you know, even like all all rich men had any rights at all, let mm-hmm. alone the rest of the population. So, yeah, awesome stuff. I'm quest- questioning and I'm thinking about um, Alberta's place in the country currently, because if, if anywhere we're seeing uh, anger towards politics like we see in the States, uh, it's probably in Alberta. Um, where they were once in in a really strong point feeding the entire country and now things have gone pretty sideways and you know i wouldn't be surprised if we saw make alberta great again as you know yeah. it even has the same letters um oh, yeah, if, if if we saw something like that and and are is there a danger of um of that situation getting even more extreme and, and what might the, the costs be of that? Mm, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know enough about local Alberta politics. It, it is, there's certainly a tension there though. Right. And, and that they have this roller coaster of not even roller coaster, but like, you know, this huge boom that goes on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then just a plummeting that affected so many people and horribly. So, and you know, people are sitting on like these crazy mortgages, even though the value of the houses are gone and all of that stuff. People do what they do during economic booms. It's not an Alberta thing. It's a human thing, right? It's like you get confident and you spend money. Uh, and now the some of the recovery processes are such that they feel as though the rest of Canada is saying, well, no, you can't do that anymore because now we have environmental priorities. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a ripe tension there about being moralized to 
when you're trying to come out of economic uh, negative conditions. I mean, it's not the same level as disaster as what we might have seen like with near Greek bankruptcy and 2011, 2012. It's, it's problematic, but I think that tension of federal versus provincial and other provinces not necessarily being on the same page, you know, that BC, Alberta schism that happened, gosh, a few years ago now, <laughs> about uh, things not crossing the provincial border. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's there. I don't know how, I don't know. I don't, I, I have a hard time imagining it taking a super sharp turn. Really, we're just worried about our hockey team. <laughs> I mean, yeah. ultimately, although if if they have their own league, they'll just play each other. Yeah, that might be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you guys Flames or Oilers fans? I'm, I'm Flames. Flames okay. Oilers right here. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's our great schism. Along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Cool. Um, one thing that I wanted to throw out there and, and get some perspective on is um, that of universal basic income. Hmm. Um, it's a political idea that's been tossed around a lot that um that looks to be a solution to the huge income disparities that we see um in in places that are hurting um and i mean serb could potentially have been a bit of a trial run for it totally. um you know non like they're not advertising it that way but do you want to just tell us a little bit about the policy of a of a universal basic income it, there's a few other terms that can be used to describe it and um, and how or why it might or might not work? Yeah, it's. Um, I'm actually really interested in this. Like, it's one of those things where I'm like, I really want to learn a little bit more about that. So I know some stuff. I'll, so I'll I'll do my best. But, <laughs> but you I know what? Promise. You know more than us, and yeah. probably most of our listeners. So that that's why you're the expert. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, there there have been pilot programs. One was done in Finland a couple of years ago of universal basic basic income UBI for short. And, um, in terms of just giving a standard monthly income to groups of the population as a trial run. I think they did it for two years or maybe one year and they, they renewed for one year and giving a floor of income so that it takes away um, the super strong fear of insecurity, right? Of literally having no shelter, nothing mm-hmm. to eat. So the, 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 uh, the abstract idea behind it is that if you provide all citizens UBI, and it's just enough to basically keep them from dying, you know, at its root, then they have a certain foundation of which they can begin to think about options and make better choices because they won't be making those choices out of total fear. Parallel to healthcare, right? It's like if you have socialized universal healthcare, then you don't have to worry about like, oh my God, I fell out of a tree and my arm's broken, but I can't afford to go to it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's that same kind of basic idea. So that's the concept. I did read one study about Finland. that tracked people and what they did during that time and the results weren't dramatic it wasn't like wow and of the 5,000 people selected they all did amazing things and completely got themselves out of bad situations but there were there, there was improvement like some people they were able to work on their mental health some people were able to pay off some debts some people were able to get their own place to live for the first time that kind of thing it was a very small trial, though, and there was always the awareness, I think, of the participants that it was going to end. So I think it'd be a very different kind of um, reassurance or cognitive approach to know that it'd be a lifelong thing. So th- that's that's the potential strength of it, though, is that it takes away that baseline of fear. The potential downside, I mean, A, it's expensive. 
there's always a moral hazard in there that if people can figure out a way to get by on that universal basic income, then they might not work. This is this is an argument. I'm not saying it would happen. And the danger of that is that then they don't pay the taxes that then go into paying for UBI. So I, accountability is is like paramount, essentially, if that's going to work. It seems, from my from my point of view anyways, um, what could that look like? I wonder, like, how, how could it be accountable where there there's a, it's not just a, you know, here's your UBI, goodbye, you know, yeah. but it's like, here's your UBI and this is what the process looks like mm -hmm. for the first year, blah, 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 blah. And then after that, we're yeah. going to move to this. And then from that, we want to see this. And then, I mean, you know, could a conversation like that happen? And how could we have a, it, it's a really tricky conversation, you know, that's why I'm being careful just because, you know, it could be offensive to some people. It could be not, not everyone's equal, you know, equal in terms of opportunities necessarily. And so totally. it makes it very, <laughs> you have nailed actually what I think is an yeah. undercurrent of it, which is why maybe why some people don't want to go there, but they don't even really know what's worrying them about it. I mean, there's the economic possibility that you have UBI the government is putting their their resources towards that, so then they scale back on other benefits, right? Because they're like, well, you've got UBI. Why do you need the, right. the 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 child benefit tax? Why do you need this? Why do you need that? You know, you've got UBI. So there's that economic possibility. The other side is that there's this uh, there's this argument within progressive circles that implies that we're all the same, and so that any any inequalities are the product of institutional structures. Mm. You know, like why aren't certain if, if, if everyone isn't performing well, um, there can be, it's, it's difficult to tease out what are individual differences, what are group differences, and what is the fault of the structure. Right. Yeah. With UBI, if it's going to sharpen maybe some of the individual differences, and that could, that could have its own effects. Well, and one of the models of UBI is that not just people who are who are the poor, who are desperate, who are needing it to live, get UBI. Everyone gets UBI. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, some other social um, social welfare um, funding is eliminated. Yeah. So, you know, there's savings there in, in eliminating some of those other... So, like, millionaires would get it? Yep. Yeah. It would be a yeah. universal policy. Yeah, I yeah. mean... Any and, legal citizen would get it. And And what it does is... Obviously, it, it's more financially challenging, but it also removes the shame. So it, mm. it people don't have to mm. feel like they're, you know, lower than those who don't get it. Right. And and there's there have been a, a number of trials done on a small scale that have shown that um, it it doesn't take away people's um, desire to to work or to go to work. It actually can increase productivity because then that fear that is paralyzing and makes people desperate is is removed and and people have a little bit more agency um and let's be honest people are people and you're always going to have people who take advantage of things i mean we're sure. seeing it with serb yeah right we're, we're hearing stories of people who like could go back to work and they're like well actually i can make probably just as much on serb and just you know be at home to do what i want yeah. be to to you know have leisure or do my art or whatever and um you know, for you could probably hear my my resistance to that. But you know, for some, for 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 entrepreneurs and and people who have kind of built their businesses, um, you know, I think there's a value in like really, um, you know, working for 
like um, working and creating and building your own life. And yes, I, you know, I've benefited as a business, especially early on from, from help mm-hmm. as well. But, but having that accountability, it actually inspired me to work even harder because yeah. I was like, wow, I'm, I felt so fortunate. So I just feel like it's so important that if that's there, that they find a way for it to be something that propels them um, even further as opposed to keeping them mm-hmm. where they're at. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it would be, I mean, I guess like other policies, I'm trying to think on the top of my head to compare them to, but you know, there's, there's this thing called type one and type two error when you're thinking about a public policy and, and I forget which one is which, but one is the, the concern that you overgive and people, and some people take advantage, which honestly, I think in reality is always a minority, right? Like most people, most people are pretty good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's me. And then there's the type two error where it's like you're you're so trying to account for something not being abused or exploited in every way that you end up actually unintentionally harming people who did have good intentions. Serb mm-hmm. was an experiment. I think it would it would have to go on for years to really see how people behave because the dynamics of COVID and people's anxiety level were such that I could I could see like a lot of people just kind of relaxing into Serb. Plus, also, it was so sudden, right? Which meant that some people who just, I don't know, they ended up resting. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I saw no, it in, in, sure. in my kids. They, they they didn't love being sent home and not being able to do anything. And I certainly miss them going to school in a huge way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, come the summer, I don't think I'd seen them so well rested by mm. a certain point. Mm-hmm. It's, well, the, the mental health impact, it was huge of COVID for everyone. Yeah. And, yeah, the, the rest or the... Uh, you know, people not wanting to go back to work, uh, like immediately, it's, it's probably unfair to equate that to a UBI type scenario. Because um, when we look back at human behavior is there is that innate drive to to do something to contribute to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And if people were no longer that fearful, if, you know, post COVID, and and also just if they were had the reassurance of, of having their living not be a month to month a day to day fear they may find ways to contribute to work to create yeah. um in, in a way that they weren't able to before so yeah i i hear you about um about people you know slacking off or taking advantage of of serb or or other similar measures but but i do think that there's that most people aren't really like that like that's a popular narrative but in reality, we we do want to contribute. Like we have mm-hmm. those innate human desires to to do something positive or meaningful. Yeah, totally. um, and and when we're not, when we're doing something destructive, it's because we're not well. Mm-hmm. And and that's where the UBI comes in to to help people who are are not well and who are doing terrible things or or just super unhappy because they they don't have the basic needs covered yeah no i i think you're totally right like i think in the longer term it would probably like most things it brings out uh, the best in a lot of people and it highlights where it doesn't um and you know like those sorts of discussions happen around all kinds of policies you know like a like a pension (laughs) in the first half of the 20th century is like what's now the cpp and um healthcare the way it is across canada you know the idea because I lived in the States for a while and this was pre-Obamacare, but I, I, I would hear arguments against having more accessible free health care. And, and there was this idea of, oh, people are going to go to the doctor for every small thing. Well, 
maybe, maybe right, I know yeah. someone who actually enjoys going to get a medical appointment in the middle of their day and <laughs> right. feeling awkward and uncomfortable and scared. Hey, if the doctor's super handsome, then maybe. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. But otherwise, I don't know. You know what I mean? So I, I, I think there's, is there a case against UBI? For sure. I mean, not the least, just how would we afford it right now? But but in terms of those bigger ones, I think those discussions have been there for everything. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be, it, we're not talking like $5,000 a month. Right? It would be like maybe $1,000 a month at the most. I Basic think. income, right? Basic income, Well, yeah. and I think a good example is what they did with the wage subsidy with businesses. I think it's mm-hmm. a perfect example. The whole point of that money was to say, we want you to keep, you know, you know, making that amazing food. We want you to keep, you know, keeping keeping the the landscapes tended to. We want totally. we want like it wasn't. A, hey, here's some here's seventy five percent wage subsidy. Now you can go home. Yeah. It was like we want you to continue to build and innovate and 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 uh, yeah. you know help our economy. So here's some help. That's that's the I see that as a little different than um, what we're talking about, right? And so just. I would just love to see if they do come up with it, which I think I think it would be would be great. It's just an ability for for people to see how it can kind of take them to that next step, yeah. and not just stay in survival mode, yeah. right? Which yeah. is important, and you can't thrive if you're not if you're struggling to even survive. But but a way for them to be like, now that you're not worrying about where your food comes from, let's talk about you know who you can be in the world, yeah. and and what you can contribute. Yeah, I where think do you that's, see yourself yeah. in five years? Like, what what is what are your absolute needs? What are your wants? Yeah, what what could you reasonably contribute to society? You know, and, and people might, listening might be like, easy for you to say, okay, but once again, you could say that about anybody, right? Yeah. We're we're all sure, yeah. Um, it's just yeah. I have, I, I think, so my, my thing, and I love to bring this up in class because some students have really strong opinions and some are just like, what? I've never heard of it before. But a lot of countries in Europe, they have mandatory public service um, for people when they hit 18, mostly mm-hmm. guys. I think it should be both. It used to always be mandatory military service yes. for one year. Uh, but, um, and one of my cousins d- did this, you could, you, you can declare yourself and in Italy, it's called pacifist. And then you do a year and a half of public service. So like he worked in a state run old age home and you do that at some, like you have to do it after you hit 18, you can defer it for a while, but most get it done. You know, I think that is great mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the, the really tangible exchange of this is what the state provides for you no matter who's in power, right? These are the rules. This is what you do to give back, but it helps build in a little bit of a work ethic. And I think maybe it helps build in some of that more, I don't know, just relationship to the fabric of a bigger community. Yeah. You know, even if it's not a community, you know, like obviously, you know, the idea of Canada, it's like, we're never going to know everyone in Canada. It's, it's, it's not that kind of community. But but the idea of trying to wrap one's head around where do I belong? What do I need to You're do? You're part of a greater whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it might help like something hand in hand like that with UBI could maybe help to like, first off, it builds, it builds some skills in young people who may reasonably not have any. But secondly, it builds in that kind of dynamic of this is what is expected a little bit of work you know grand scheme of things one year of your life not much and and then okay and then we have ubi afterwards to help with that already skill building activity yeah I love totally it. i appreciate how you shifted the conversation to your students um because i think that's <laughs> that is one place as we're kind of bringing this conversation to a close we're, we're nearing our, our mark here but we wanted to talk about the future and and what you see in the classroom um, and as well as, uh, I think, talking about the political process and, and how to get people engaged in it when, um, 
a lot of people are dismissive or like completely fed up with with politics um, and and don't want to engage and be a part of it. And and one thing that that Sonia Firstenau said in the first interview we did with her was that um, democracy is not a birthright. Like we need to, it's fragile. We need to protect it. And and we can, like in our lifetimes, we just accept it as the the reality, but it's not just the reality. It's, It's something that, that can go away and and we, we can't even imagine what that would be like but the cost would be high so do you want to talk a little bit about um the general feeling of your students towards politics and um and what you see in the classroom from that perspective and you know what what our hope for the future might be with with young people in young people's engagement with politics I mean, I mean, I'll start with because I do teach within political science, I'm seeing students that are self-selecting into those courses. So it's every now and then I'll get a student who's taking a course as an elective and they're like, I have, I don't know, I'm just this fit my timetable, but I'm not really into this. And fair enough. I think, um, yeah, to Sonia's point, that is a thing to be reckoned with democracy, uh, the rights that we have they're not rights you know it's it's not like the sun coming up the sun coming down it's the product of human decisions Mm. which means that they are vulnerable to different human decisions as they come into trends so it is a privilege in a sense and in order for certain privileges to stay in place there has to be a buy-in how to get that buy-in is tricky because people talk about voting all the time you know you got to vote you got to vote and I can appreciate how for people who are not naturally interested in politics, which is fair, right? We all can't all be interested in everything. I mean, I'm I'm genuinely interested in taxes and I have like one person in the whole world to have that conversation with. But but, but it's like, so how do you, for people who are not interested and they're being told to vote, I can I can appreciate how they can look at their choices and they're like, well, none of these none of these say anything to me. I don't like any of these choices. So Mm -hmm. any vote I cast would be a false one. So in coming back to students, I have a very strict policy for myself in that I never want to tell students what to think. I want to give them tools for how to think, for how to approach things analytically, because that is not my job. It is not students' business to hear my political opinions or to be told what they ought to think. I hate that. Mm. So, But one thing I do encourage them to do is to think about politics and parties and politicians like human beings. No one is all good and all bad. You know, they are parents, they are partners, they are roommates, they are friends. It's like you, you have to look at the whole thing. You have to, if you want to engage in this, do yourself a favor and don't expect perfection from the Green Party or the NDP or, or whatever, the People's Party. It's like, look at the platforms. What, what, I hate this word, what resonates with you? But but like, where do you see the strengths and weaknesses? Where What is the bargain that you're willing to strike? And and I'm pretty explicit with them. I'm like, I'm not saying this because I have, a, I feel the need to get you to vote and that's success. I think that's a good tool for consensus building. And that's the problem with politics is that people want black and white. They want like, you know, perfect candidate, evil candidate. Right. In reality, neither of them are, right? right. Like they're, we are, these are collections of humans making sometimes fallible decisions with good intentions. So it's the idea of like, grappling with yourself looking at individuals around you translating that to party platforms and then thinking about how do you make things happen how do you try to do the greatest good for the greatest amount of people um, and make peace with the fact that there's not going to be a perfect policy or a perfect political party or a perfect leader by any means so that's what i try to convey to them that, that that i don't want them to be put off 
by simply doing a quick scan of Facebook and they're like, oh, these all look like jackasses. I don't believe any of them. I'm out. <laughs> you know, there's, there is a certain amount of laziness in there that I think is not good for democracy. That's one thing. But I actually think it's not good for them qua them. I appreciate that you're you're leading that discussion in the classroom. Try. Uh, it, it's, it's a great thing to nurture. So, yeah, we, we are at our time. Um, but thank you so much for, for everything that you shared today. It's been this was fun. Thanks yeah, so much. it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Cool. Thanks, guys. And that's the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us at all the usual places. Obstaclecoursepodcast.com. We're very active on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast. And speaking of Facebook, we have a great new growing community called the Obstacle Course Community that you can join, dialogue with Andrew and I and your fellow listeners about the previous week's episode and any obstacles you're dealing with. And we do appreciate reviews, whether it's on iTunes, Google, Facebook, whatever. It helps people find the podcast. And it has nothing to do with our fragile egos. Well, uh, you know, we just like to hear back from great people just like yourselves. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep pushing through those obstacles.